Hi, good morning, oh, afternoon, everyone. Not a morning anymore. I hope you all are ready for an exciting second panel today. Uh, the future of global alliances. I think already during the first panel, we saw some overlaps between climate change, climate crisis, and issues of international security. So I think this is a this is a great panel, a, 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 if you will, a sequel uh, to our uh, fascinating morning discussion. Uh, today at the panel with us, um, we're very, very honored to have um, Professor Hilda Restad, uh, Professor of Peace and Conflict at uh, Oslo University New College. Uh, she is joining us uh, online. Um, and then uh, uh, in the room with us, uh, we have uh, Yonela Cholan, uh, who's a research fellow at European Policy Center. Uh, welcome, Yonela. Uh, we have a BSAS and University of Kent alumnus, uh, Christopher Case, uh, who now works at NATO Shape as a hybrid uh, threats uh, analyst. Uh, welcome, Chris. And then uh, at the end, we have uh, uh, my beloved colleague, uh, Dr. Tom Kazir, uh, reader in international relations and director uh, of uh, Global Europe Center. Uh, so, without further ado, I will ask uh, Professor Rustad if uh, she would be so kind to give her opening remarks today and uh, get us all thinking on the current moment in international security, in particular in terms of global alliances and international security institutions. Uh, students of international relations, our panelists uh, obviously, are very aware of the a fairly entrenched uh, scholarly discourse on U.S. grand strategy, which uh, to summarize basically says, well, administrations come and go, but some major grand directions in U.S. strategy, U.S. foreign policy, security defense policies, they tend to remain largely stable. Um, and yet both academics and policy observers have said that uh, the Trump administration actually shook that stability up and uh, 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 sort of introduced a point of friction. How is it possible that they, they managed to destabilize? Uh, now, I'm not necessarily saying this is exactly what happened, but at least they destabilized the policy and the academic discourse about U.S. foreign policy, right? We're talking about a watershed moment, um, and it was only four years. How... How do you think that was possible? How do you explain that? Uh, Trump's uh, ability to disrupt U.S. grand strategy was inherently at the narrative level. Because he went against everything that American presidents had been saying about what the U.S. is and therefore should be in the world since 1945, is why he was a disruption and so different from other presidents. It was a, a completely different story about what the United States is, what kind of country it is, who it likes, who it dislikes, who are its friends, who are its uh, uh, enemies. At the level of actual policy, it's much hard, like things are much stickier, right? Institutions, bureaucracies, things are stickier. And I think you saw in the first two years of the Trump administration, there was complete disconnect between what Trump was saying, which was shocking and new and, and, and you know, 180 degree turn, and what was happening on the ground with US foreign policy. Because you had sticky bureaucracies, sticky policies, people lowered further below him who disagreed with what he was saying. So you had Trump intimating that the US should leave NATO 
all the while, you know, the Pentagon is sending, you know, troops to Poland and strengthening NATO. So you had a, uh, there was a rhetoric uh, and a sort of actual practical policy um, disconnect. But as Trump got rid of people who disagreed with him, I think you saw a little bit more of a consolidation. And I think the real question is what would have happened in a second Bush administration when he had been able to get rid of those people beneath him who disagreed? And I think one of the things we've, we're learning from the books that are being written is that he might have actually pulled the U.S. out of NATO, which would not only have been a rhetorical change, it would have been a real policy change. Excellent. Yes, that, that is a, a really, really good point. Uh, but for now, I'd like to I actually like to go to Tom. And I just wanted to say, if you go to the conference website, you can actually see all of our speakers uh, 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 sort of brief uh, uh, blurbs about them. So who they are and what exactly they work on. And if you look at Tom's profile, you will see that he is our in-house Russia expert. So uh, connecting uh, 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 Professor uh, uh, Professor's point uh, uh, to to your area of interest, Tom, uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you see uh, the debate around Russian nationalism correlated to a, you know, what's arguably been described as a shift in US foreign policy, which was a nationalist or Jacksonian one, right? Uh, do you see any, and clearly correlations have been made, but how do you explain these overlaps and uh, how is Russian nationalism in foreign policy different from that of the United States? Okay, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, glad to be here and thanks to the organizers for organizing the fantastic conference. What is interesting about Russia and nationalism is that Putin has often been regarded as a staunch nationalist by Western media, while he actually was, and maybe we should say was, uh, very much a selective nationalist within Russia, in the sense that he would use nationalism whenever it would suit his interests and the interests of Russia. And if you look at the discourse of Putin over the last couple of years, he didn't put too much emphasis on, on classic nationalist, ethnic nationalist uh, arguments. It put the emphasis mainly on the confrontation with the West. Now, something interesting has happened, that is that the war that started now in on February the 24th this year against Ukraine, um, is a war that is not a result of this escalation with the West. It is not a war that started over the enlargement of NATO, because NATO accession was already promised to Ukraine back in 2008. That's 14 years ago. There was no single indication that this promise would be delivered upon very soon. So Ukraine was not going to join NATO anytime soon. This means actually that something else happened in Russian discourse and in Russian thinking and in, within the Kremlin. Yeah. Uh, where you maybe see a sort of reinterpretation that is pretty much nationalist in, 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 in nature, in the sense that uh, the discourse we had about NATO enlargement and how these increased tensions with, uh, with, uh, with Russia and so on was probably pretty much a pretext, a sort of distraction. Yeah? And the real thing that happened, I think, was a sort of radicalization and escalation of uh, the Russian attitude towards Ukraine. Uh, many Russian analysts have written for a long time about the need uh, of Putin to find a sort of permanent solution for this problem in eastern Ukraine, because it was not really clear what sort of what sort of objectives uh, Russia had in had in mind. So there was an attempt to come up with a permanent solution, and probably there was a sort of escalation in the sense that different scenarios were tried to destabilize Ukraine, to topple the regime, and so on. And since not of, nothing of this worked, it ended up with an attempt at occupation, which is also not working now, as we know, but which may still lead to a very uh, uh, disastrous, long-lasting war, a lasting instability, maybe simply a new front line that may stay there for many years, uh, many years to come. And the fact that this happened, I think, has a lot to do with the, with the fact that in Russia there was a feeling of existential crisis over what they perceived as the loss of Ukraine. 
and something that probably we underestimated back in 2014. Losing Ukraine was seen as, as, as losing part of Russia's nature. And that is part of the public debate that, that has been very prominent in Russia over the last years and was already there in the beginning, in the early 90s. Solzhenitsyn, the former Soviet dissident, wrote that the end of uh, the Soviet Union was not a decolonization process, but it was an amputation, as if Russia lost part of itself. Yeah? And I think this attitude, a nationalist attitude has very much contributed to this radicalization of, of, of ideas. And it's interesting, of course, because some conservative circles in the United States like to refer to Putin. Uh, Pat Buchanan at some point wrote an article uh, entitled Why Putin is One of Us. So it has always, there have always been these links. But I think if you look at the nationalism debate itself, Russia is a very special case because Russia represents both ethnic nationalism, the Russians within Russia, but at the same time, it's very much a federal multinational country with many different ethnicities, religions, and so on. And in that sense, it doesn't fit the classic image of a uh, of, of conservative nationalism as we have it, for example, in, in European countries. Yeah? And Putin always had to play the two cards. And now he's abusing the cards, so to speaking about compatriots, a genocide against the Russians in Ukraine, pretending they are part of them, they are ethnic Russians. While it is a term that in the context of the Russian past and the Russian empire doesn't make any sense, there is no such a thing like an ethnic Russian, or at least it's not a clear concept. Yeah? It's very fuzzy, as the borders are very fuzzy in many ways as well. Excellent, thank you, Tom. Yes, I, th I think you're hitting the nail on the head, um, especially you know, in enabling us to think about how for a lot of the uh, uh, sort of Russian public intellectuals, but their own, they too have their own foreign policy and IR experts. It's not just something we got. Um, for them, the, the sort of the Russian geopolitical imagination and attitude towards nationalism is in fact not an aggressive one, right? For them, Russian nationalism is about a defensive crouch, defending something that has been attacked, that has been eroded, that has been under threat, right? And these are not just, uh, I think, instrumentalist sort of cynical discourses. Sure, there's a lot of cynical rhetoric as well, but 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 if you read this sort of geopolitical literature for decades now, there's a sense of uh, the need to redeem something that was uh, taken from Russia, whether we agree with that viewpoint or not. And in that sense, uh, this is where I want to uh, uh, go to go to Chris and Yonella. Uh, uh, first, Yonella, um, can you give us your view of uh, uh, sort of where the place of what we call Western Europe or the Euro Club is uh, in these uh, sort of geopolitical reshuffling that we're seeing today? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. Uh, so what we are seeing today is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's a watershed moment uh, that will define the future of the European security and uh, have cascading uh, effects on all the neighborhoods, from the northern neighborhood in the Arctic to the southern neighborhood in the Mediterranean, and clearly uh, to the eastern neighborhood, not only on Ukraine, but also the other countries of the Eastern Partnership, also on the Black Sea region, most exactly. And I, I probably what President Putin tried to do for the past couple of years was to uh, create tensions among the partners, both inside the European Union and also in NATO. Uh, he had an intense propaganda campaign against the European Union and NATO, especially in the eastern part of the, con uh, the, the Europe. Uh, he also supported the far right or uh, uh, 
left uh, parties, extremists on both sides who were trying to change the establishment inside the European Union. But what we are seeing today is that he had the opposite result. At, the, at this current moment, basically NATO found his reason to exist that uh, clause of collective defense it's now more than ever important one uh, the defense of one it's also the defense of uh, every partner inside the alliance article 5 it's uh, in, i don't know narrated every day in all the discourses of our uh, leaders we see that the desire of Americans to focus more on China and park Russia, as some of the commenters were uh, discussing about uh, what's the, the strategy or the foreign policy of President Biden, desire to appease the Europeans, uh, park Russia and focus on China. We see that Americans are back in Europe because they need to be back in Europe. It's also in their interest to make sure that NATO is a credible organization because probably they will also like to expand NATO in the future to work on also the Asia-Pacific region. So we see that basically what President Putin did was what the Euro-Atlantic organization didn't succeed to do them by themselves, to create solidarity, coherence, unity in their messages and in this couple of months uh, before the start of the war there were intense discussions and diplomatic cooperation among Washington, uh, Brussels and all the capitals in uh, the European Union and NATO countries. So this is something unseen. It's especially keeping in mind that we had the Trump administration previously and uh, that that created a lot of struggles. So now we are in this new normal for the European security and defense. We are also seeing that the European Union, by this newly published um, strategic compass, found its voice as a geopolitical actor and want to act on these newly found voices. The question is how they will share the responsibility, because we are not living only in a perma crisis. We, Basically, we are seeing that we are moving from one crisis to another. So we are living in a constant crisis, but we are also living in a constant multi-crisis. We don't have only the war in Ukraine. We also have climate security and all these issues that climate change is bringing. We have also the geopolitics and the fact that the Arctic region is becoming hotter, not only from the Russian militarization, but also because other big actors are interested in this region, uh, like China, India, or uh, other parts of the world. Uh, we're also seeing um, that instability, it's mostly, you know, the, the framework of how, can, uh, how we interpret the security nowadays. And this new normal will be characterized not only by instability, but also uncertainty, less cooperation, more confrontation within the international system. So basically what we have, it's like um, 30, 360 degrees need for a security approach. There are conflicts 
all around us and the European Union will have to face and work and deal with them and they cannot do them by themselves. So probably what we'll see in a uh, couple of months from, from here on that they will start to work more with NATO. If the strategic autonomy was the issue that um, maybe a European Union tries to take some parts of NATO and uh, cover the security and defense uh, part, which was basically uh, NATO's main uh, umbrella. Now we are seeing the need for both organizations to work together in order to keep the peace, prosperity and safety of the Euro-Atlantic uh, space, because otherwise no organization will be uh, enough to do it by itself. Thank you so much, Janela. Um... On the point of NATO, that uh, perfectly actually brings me then to Chris. I mean, everyone um, has heard uh, um, uh, uh, at length uh, about the Russian government's um, portrayal of the role of NATO in, uh, in, in the current conflict. And so if we were to believe Moscow, uh, they simply have to be um, invading Ukraine because uh, how else do you define some how else do you defend something supposedly intrinsically russian from um western expansion uh, i'm obviously going to ask you you know uh working in nato uh, how do your colleagues how do you feel about uh, um the alliance being uh, placed so centrally in the discourse of russian expansionism and uh, uh moreover uh, a more specific question is i think and also given given your profile and that you work on hybrid threats, in early February, when we were fearing uh, uh, the outbreak of this war and nearing it, as we now know, a lot of observers were saying that cyber attacks by Russia will be very much on the table and will be a normalized part of their war strategy. And however, that hasn't quite happened uh, uh, yet in the sort of uh, mass scale, uh, uh, high profile way uh, we may have expected. Thank you very much. Uh, excellent question. And thank you for having me today. It's uh, as a BSIS alum, it's nice to be back here today. And before I get to your questions, if uh, if any of the students would like to reach out to me about the opportunities for working for NATO, please do so. Christian has my email. Uh, glad to help out whatever I can on that one. So uh, to go to your first question, we talk about the NATO focus. I think Tom actually said it very, very nicely earlier when he talked about, you know, with Putin always talking about the narratives about Ukraine joining NATO, even though they did get, you know, some assurances several years ago, in all reality, because of the frozen conflicts in the Donbass, the taking of uh, Crimea, there was never really going to be, politically, that was not going to be a valid option for, for the alliance, uh, at least in the short term. I don't know exactly how many years it would take to, to solve those crises. So I don't think that was going to be something that Putin genuinely thought was a secure threat or a security threat. Uh, of course, we heard about the, you know, this realist language about putting missiles, you know, on the Russian border. That's only if, if Ukraine, if they did manage to get in, if they would be okay with that and the alliance as a whole were to say, let's go ahead and do that one. So I don't think that was the reason why. I think kind of like what Hilda talked about earlier was the fact of, I think he perceived Biden as going to be, and actually the larger international community, as less willing to take the actions that it did. Um, I was shocked uh, and pleasantly surprised to see the international community come together the way that they did. The amount of sanctions that were levied, the amount of material that is being promised and delivered to the Ukrainians uh, in their struggle. 
I think he underestimated that on top of the, I mean, it's a massive strategic miscalculation in and of itself, but on top of his, what his own capabilities are. Um, and then I think this kind of blends into what you were talking about with the cyber attacks. I think he had, and his senior leadership had a complete misunderstanding and they clearly, but it's very evident they had false intelligence or faulty intelligence from the FSB on not only the Western response, but also the Ukrainian response and the resistance that they put up capabilities, but also across the Dimefield spectrum of instruments of power. So diplomatic information, military, economic, financial, intelligence, and legal. There seems to be little coordination because I, I think they were under the impression that it was going to be a much quicker operation, that the Ukrainians would be much more willing to open them, uh, openly welcome them. And when that didn't happen, we started to see the problems that we see, of, you know, the military, military equipment breaking down, uh, the soldiers not wanting to fight. Um, in some cases, conscripts being forced to sign contracts since it's illegal to send conscripts into uh, out for use outside of uh, domestic purposes. So with specifically about the cyber attacks, one other element that is for consideration is that unlike with the military, which is a highly visible thing, it was going to be seeing tanks rolling down the street, APCs, aircraft flying over. It's very, very hard to hide that from the international community. The cyber attacks is something that a lot of the tool sets are, are single use. So if you talk about a zero day attack, once it's used, it's done. You know, it, it, the vulnerability is detected and the people can work on patches to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, so it could be that they did not want to let their hand out of what their true capability is. Again, going back to when I said about the fact they didn't think it was gonna be this difficult of a struggle. Now, the question is, will we start to see more of it in the next four to six weeks? Or as, as Tom even mentioned, the fact that this is probably gonna go on for a long time, will we start to see more of that? And that's something that we're gonna be watching very closely. A quick follow-up question. Uh, could there maybe be a, a a, a, a mad type of dynamic going on as far as uh, cyber warfare. So uh, the way we see mutually assured destruction in mm. the domain of nuclear mm. capabilities, could there be a similar mutually deterrent dynamic going on in the domain of cyber tools, right? That both sides, mm -hmm. although I don't think there are two sides here, it's, it's more complicated, but let's say both sides are afraid of actually resorting to their cyber capabilities. Absolutely. And especially when certainly Russian technology seems to lag behind the West, generally speaking. Um, so they may not have the skill set to keep up in a cyber arms race, for, for lack of a better term, but they're also going to be more vulnerable. Um, and I think the global world order saw took a very valuable lesson from the Stuxnet attacks. Whoever did that, I'm not pointing any fingers, um, but um, the fact of just how how useful a cyber tool can be used if it's if they're not able to catch it and detect it and and prevent against it. Fascinating. Thank you, Tom. Back to you. As we are uh, sort of uh, observing, unfortunately. Uh, how the war um, is unfolding. There has been a lot of Western commentary on the divisions in the sort of Kremlin or whatever way you want to uh, uh, sort of whatever metaphor you want to use for the Russian regime. How reliable are these reports? Is this a just wishful thinking? Uh, currently, we need to rely a lot on intelligence, but we do have some history of how the Russian regime has behaved since the waning days of Boris Yeltsin and, and ever since. Uh, what is your sense? Uh, should uh, people who want to see an end to this war uh, be putting any hopes in uh, in sort of the, yeah, the internal divisions there? I don't think we should put, put too much hope. And maybe to link it to, to what Chris was saying, I think we've seen in many ways that um, Russia is 
less powerful than many thought it was. And actually quite some analysts have written about that. And the big exception, of course, is its nuclear deterrence capacity, which is probably the reason why Putin referred to that so early in the war, because this is the real power they have, but of course one that you can only use in very exceptional circumstances. And when it comes to the power of the Kremlin, I think the big unknown, the black box, is what's happening within the Kremlin. Yeah, Is, is potentially Russia weak there? Is there a division? Uh, I have my doubts, or at least I think there is no division that is strong enough to bring Putin down in the next couple of months or maybe even years. And I think what we saw uh, just before the war started was Russian Security Council meeting where the key decision makers were actually present and where Putin forced them to commit on camera to, well, the recognition of the People's Republics indirectly to the war, so they couldn't backtrack later on. Yeah. But at the same time, he was basically scolding one of the people that were very much seen as part of the inner circle of uh, of Putin, Narishkin in the very first place, which is the, the leader of the Foreign Intelligence Service. He's, he's the, the first spy of Russia, so to so to speak. And and that made me think a little bit of, of Stalinism. Stalin had his approach, and of course there are many differences in many other ways, but Stalin had his approach whereby he wanted to make sure that nobody within the elite felt safe. He could be the next victim. And by picking out Narishkin, I'm actually just making fun of him on camera. Really in an embarrassing way, I think this was uh, Putin's way to maintain power, despite the fact that very clearly some of the key decision makers are opposed to this war. Yeah? But they have committed themselves to the war, they have been degraded, they know they can be the next victim, they know they, they are in danger, and there's a whole new wave of repression that goes really far. You can get 15 years in prison if you refer to a war. This is really very far reaching. And this is this, this has some similarities with the situation uh, we had in the Soviet uh, in the Soviet Union. So I think the chances that uh, Putin will be brought down uh, by a, a palace revolution of some sort is, is a rather small. Uh, I think also the oligarchs do not always have the influence, or at least not all of them do have the influence to really make Putin change uh, his mind. The chances of a revolution are also pretty small because part of the, the, the population and public opinion accepts the discourse. And that has, of course, a lot to do with the propaganda that has existed for uh, for years. We may see some protests coming from, say, mothers of soldiers uh, because of the, the massive number of casualties, but all this will take time. And the opportunities to protest are limited. There is basically no organized opposition left. So I don't see many opportunities. But again, it's a black box, so we largely have to speculate. Fascinating. Thank you, Tom. It, 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 it has been interesting to see how in CIA estimates, uh, one of the richest men in the world, Vladimir Putin, uh, adopted a sort of leftist populist discourse on Russian oligarchs as if he had nothing to do with the creation of those oligarchs, saying are oh, just a bunch of rich people who don't want to lose their privileges and they can't live without, what did he say, gluten-free or no? What, what He mocked them for some awkward habit. Yeah. Uh, that apparently only rich people have. Yeah, yeah, and I never understood people who saw Russia as a sort of social model because it's yeah. a it's a it's a country where wealth is distributed in a very uneven way. So yeah. there is nothing social about it. So yeah, that that was fascinating to see. But but I think that's again one of the tools that that he might resort to to separate himself from the class that is hurting and convince, I think, ordinary Russians that it is not really them who are hurting. It is just these uh, spoiled rich people and they want to convince you to give up on the war. Um, back to Professor Rastad on that point. Uh, we unpacked a little bit the, the Russian regime and now let's unpack what we, of course, would never call the American regime because we only call bad places regimes, right? Um, but, but I am interested in why is it that, and you talked a a little bit about the admiration that some of American conservatives have had for Vladimir Putin, 
um, especially American uh, sort of paleoconservatives uh, have found Putin appealing on grounds of masculine nationalism. However, a lot of that discourse has been minimized since uh, the outbreak of this war, right? Uh, Paleoconservatives have not come forward, or other types of conservatives, there are so many, but they have not come forward in droves to defend their previous pro, I wouldn't say pro-Russian, but pro-Putin stances. They've been largely silenced. You have obviously the the oddball of uh, Tucker Carlson and you know, and an occasional sort of uh, 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 state level or, or, or local official but in this sort of national way, that discourse has pulled back. How come? Could you maybe, uh, going back to your debates on the nationalist turn in U.S. foreign policy, uh, your introductory notes, could you maybe reflect on that a little bit? Well, the standard bearer for the far-right nationalist movement in the U.S. is Trump, and he has slightly pulled back a little bit on his pro-Putin rhetoric, but as we know from experience, we'll we'll pull it out again if uh, he gets the chance in the future. Uh, and so were Trump to be reelected in 2024, I have no no faith that he would that he would suddenly be critical of Russia or Putin or the invasion of Ukraine. Um, right now, he did. He pulled back a little bit on that rhetoric because it was seen as disadvantageous, and he saw which one the wind, which way the wind was blowing. Uh, but as we know with Trump, that he has a real hard time staying consistent, uh, and when it comes to these things, so I'm not so sure that that's um, that that's waning. But I, the the sort of future of of the Republican Party might, in a small sense, be adjudicated in the next presidential election in in the in the primaries in terms of who gets to be the standard bearer and who gets to 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 decide and 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 frame things but in that sense that's sort of why I focused a little bit on Tom Cotton because for those who are hoping for a marginalization of the Trump far right wing of the party it was not encouraging to me that Cotton was trying to incorporate trumpism in his foreign policy uh, narrative, it and, and he was doing it in a way that wasn't very it wasn't very convincing. Trump and Reagan don't don't in many ways do not go together, um, and so, but unfortunately, it does does it does not seem like like Trump and, and the far right um, is waning at all. Seen by the fact that other people in the party who are trying to become president think it is really important to stay on his good side. Thank you. Yes, who could ever forget um, gripes about Obama wearing mom jeans, whereas um, Putin rides a horse half naked. You know, back to you. Um, in the in the nineties and early two thousands, what dominated the debate between NATO and the sort of European NATO members in the European Union was the famous, infamous 3Ds debate, right? Um, and two of those 3Ds were about decoupling and the duplication of effort, right, uh, uh, by the European Union, its common security defense policy, or somehow by by European members, and therefore somehow undermining undermining NATO. You have said that inadvertently, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has solidified NATO. Do you think this debate will come back to the fore, especially as we see France, I mean, again, sort of rediscovering the rhetoric of a stronger European um, army, but also of increased German military spending and uh, that I think quite um, 
uh, uh, in a quite a worrisome way, we see push to increase spending across Europe. How do you think this will reconfigure NATO EU relations now? Hey. This is the one million dollar question, so I, I will try to to give my, my answer to it. The fact that uh, there are leaders inside the uh, European Union who'd like Europe to to have uh, its own uh, security and defense policy uh, sometimes came at the expense of NATO. But uh, I feel that the current war in Ukraine, basically what uh, will create, will create this unity and the argument that the European Union will have to work more with NATO because they cannot cover all the topics of conflict, uh, all the threats, security threats that are appearing from various burning areas around the neighborhoods, but also around the world. So if the European Union would like to be a geopolitical actor, we'll need also the support of NATO. And if NATO will need to continue to be the main um, security and defense provider of the Europe, of the Euro-Atlantic space, we'll also need the capabilities uh, of the European Union. For example, because there uh, are a lot of area of convergences. There are a lot of security threats where one organization cannot cover all the weaknesses or all the dangers that uh, that uh, a security threat is bringing. Let's say, for example, on climate security. There are a lot of areas where we also need a different approach, not only a militaristic approach. And here, um, the European Union is better equipped and has better abilities to deal all uh, these um, other consequences, like, for example, human security, uh, trying to create uh, a space uh, for, I don't know, uh, making sure that we will not deal with another pandemic because all this uh, permafrost towing in the uh, Arctic zone, it's creating, you know, bringing uh, dormant uh, viruses to the surface and may create another pandemic in the future. So we see that there are a lot of security threats which we don't have yet the capacity to understand their effects or consequences for the future, but on which both organizations will have to adapt, to prepare, to create their resilience. And in doing so, probably they will have and will be forced to cooperate. What's also important to say that we already acknowledge the fact that President Macron uh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken, in one of his public speeches that NATO is vital for the uh, European security. So basically he changed his narrative from that, uh, uh, the NATO is brain dread or whatever. Uh, so. And also we see that, yes, Germany is trying to increase their security and they want to invest more, but probably they will try to do that not only inside the European Union, inside this new created framework of cooperation, PESCO, or the European Defence Agency, or all that mechanism they're trying to build nowadays, but also within uh, NATO. And uh, we see that what the European Union does nowadays is to consult more with um, the NATO headquarters, uh, which previously, um, before uh, 
2014, before the annexation of Crimea, they really did. So what basically we see, this is the ironic consequence of the Russian aggressive actions in the eastern flank, is that they is bringing that organization closer together. Uh, and they will try to also start sharing more information and working together because they realize that uh, Russia is not the main threat. Russia is just like the anti-chamber to a cascading uh, series of threats. China is bringing a lot of security threats. Uh, the fight against climate uh, is bringing a lot of security threats. We also have terrorism. We also have uh, other uh, aspects like human security. Uh, not only in the Arctic, but also we have to keep in mind that if we are referring to all this water security, food security, how this will affect the Middle East and North Africa, and how this will create maybe uh, other conflicts or lead to other conflicts or lead to humanitarian crisis to which NATO will not be sufficiently adapt because it doesn't have the necessary tools to respond to them. They will need to work together with the European Union. So uh, in my conclusion, I feel that this is uh, one of the main opportunities for the organization to work together. Probably we'll see this cooperation uh, becoming more stronger in the future. Probably we'll see that at the future um, uh, NATO summit, this um, um, cooperation with the European Union will be highlighted as uh, the European Union highlighted its partnership with NATO in its strategic compass. Wonderful. I, I, I did have a question about that for Chris, but then uh, uh, Ignacio and uh, Christian politely winked at me that I should turn to uh, audience questions. Let's go to Tom maybe with Fabia's question. Does Russia's recent retreat from Kiev represent the beginning of the end of the war or a tactic to focus their forces in other regions of Ukraine? And then maybe I could have Chris comment on that as well, you know, NATO and all. Uh, on the second, definitely. I think it's it's really about refocusing forces in, in, in uh, the rest of Ukraine, and it's because of failure. I think it was quite clear that uh, Russia went for a full occupation of some sort of Ukraine at the beginning, the fact that they started the war on three different fronts. Uh, it has become clear that they are not up to it, that there have been many problems, logistical problems, uh, problems possibly also of uh, motivation, morale among the soldiers. So I think now it's a matter of trying to get out of this with a victory of some sort, and this they can only get in eastern Ukraine because that is closest to the narrative they have been telling for many years about uh, uh, the genocide, the so-called genocide that was happening against Russians in the east of Ukraine and so on. So I think it's really about Russia being forced to refocus and to go for a lower target. But again, whether it will be successful is a very is very much an open question, uh, because either Russia has to conquer a large part of, of eastern Ukraine, the classic example is always given is the Dnieper, the, the Dnieper uh, River, but uh, it is unlikely they will succeed in that. Uh, even if they succeed, it probably it will lead to long-term instability, a sort of guerrilla warfare. So I think it's very unlikely that this will lead to a sort of stable situation and part of Eastern Ukraine simply to be annexed without uh, without further ado. So this is definitely not the end the end of the war. This is not going well for Russia. That much is is clear. Thank you, Tom. Chris. Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of hard add to to everything that was I concur with everything he, he just said so the fact of uh, you know this is is not the end in fact this will probably go on for a very very long time so 
It's All right, nice thank to see you. that former students agree with their former professor. Always <laughs> <No. laughs> oh, a shocker. Um, back to Professor Rustad. Uh, I'm going to take this anonymous question. Uh, what do you think about Viktor Orban's potential influence in stopping the war, or at least bringing Putin to the negotiation uh, table? You've talked about um, the impact of nationalism on U.S. foreign policy and then some implications for the alliance. Do you think that nationalism in this uh, uh, sort of very unorthodox guise of Viktor Orban could actually be a tool uh, to build a bridge with Russia? I don't think I am the person to answer any questions about Hungary and Viktor Orban, but certainly in terms of what the U.S. would see as acceptable, I think Biden is a very practical man at heart and would not be adverse to uh, using these kinds of actors if the result uh, could be um, a negotiate a negotiated settlement. So in in that sense, I see I see Biden as a, a practical president who could look for these kinds of creative solutions. Excellent. Thank you. So, uh, you know, I'm going to come with, uh, to you with the uh, with this question on the Arctic, and then I will use that as a way to ask one final question. Um, so, uh, uh, in your opinion, do you think there will be a shift in global alliances with countries trying to claim land in the melting Arctic? Uh, probably what we'll see in, in the Arctic. So I, I will try to give you a little bit the current uh, situation in the Arctic. So the Arctic was considered the pole of peace, was the exception in international relations. If uh, the West had any difficulties or struggles with Russia, even after the, uh, the uh, invasion of um, uh, uh, Ukraine in 2014, annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, they tried not not to impose a sanction or stop the cooperation with Russia on Arctic affairs. So the Arctic Council continued um, its work. And when I'm referring to the Arctic Council, this is like the intergovernmental um, uh, body of the eight Arctic states and the Arctic states. I'm not sure how much you know about this, so that's why I'm trying to give you the context. So it's the US, Canada, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, uh, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. Uh, so they... Uh, Basically, the idea was we keep Arctic out of all our uh, tensions, uh, tensioned relations. Uh, but nowadays things are changing because we see that the war in Ukraine brought also a change which is cascading also on how affairs are conducted in the Arctic. So we have back the geopolitics in the Arctic, things which didn't happen since the end of the Cold War because uh, we see that the Arctic seven countries except Russia put a pause on their participation in the Arctic Council and they don't want to work anymore in this uh, intergovernmental body. Uh, not only this, but in the past couple of years, we also saw that Russia increased its militarization in the Arctic and it's increased the capacity of its uh, northern sea fleet uh, and also the their abilities. And also, it's important to, to mention that since 2018, uh, China is interested and in declared that it's a, a new near Arctic country 
and they are interested in the Arctic not only from uh, an economical and uh, energy or transport point of view, but also from a military point of view. And they would like to uh, become a polar uh, great power until 2030. So these are uh, something that we have to keep in mind. So we see that there is a lot of interest in this region. Why so? Because um, climate change, it's uh, bringing new perspective and opportunities for this region, uh, both economically, from an energy point of view, from also all the resources that are in this region. We have to keep in mind that uh, this region has um, 13 and also percent of the world undiscovered uh, or unused um, gas and 30% of the world's unused oil. Um, so also this region is important if because uh, um, from it's considered that from uh, 2040s um, the sea will can be um, used as a transport route. And this transport route um, basically cuts to 40% of the cost and time for Russia to transport its cargoes to Europe. And that means in practically billion of dollars. Apart from that, there is a lot of natural resources and um, rare earth uh, materials in the Arctic, which are can be used in this cutting um, age uh, technologies and innovations. So there are a lot of potential in the Arctic, uh, but also there are a lot of struggles because all this um, situation uh, will affect the human security of the people living there. I already mentioned about the possibilities of uh, newly diseases, uh, but also the permafrost will release um, and will be like a um, bomb, a climate bomb, because we'll release all the gases which are uh, nowadays absorbed in the ice, uh, and that will lead to the uh, increasing of the temperatures around the world. Um, so there are a lot of races in the Arctic in this perspective. Uh, I'm not sure how the better for the Arctic will be conducted, but it's also uh, something that I can foresee, or at least this is my hypothesis, is that uh, we'll see that the Western countries uh, uh, will cooperate more because they will be also interested in preserving the environment of the Arctic and the human security. This is something that it's also stipulated in all these uh, strategies toward the Arctic. We are not sure how Russia will deal with um, with the Arctic, and we have to keep in mind that uh, a big chunk of the Arctic. Um, uh, Coast, it's Russian coast because Russia it's uh, basically the biggest country in the world as geography. So probably we'll see more tensions that will also be exacerbated in the Arctic, not only because of the fights for the Arctic resources, but also because of all the geopolitical uh, and ideological fights in other areas of strategy around the world between the Western uh, countries, let's say, alliance and the authoritarian one. Thank you, Anola. Basically, what Yanela is telling us, if you're a great power and it occasionally gets cold in your country, you will find a way to claim the Arctic. And it, 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 
it apparently is the is the new um is the new relationship but i will remind everyone that the sort of the securitization the geopolitics of the arctic is, is not a new thing and uh, as um, with many other things colonial forces had already uh, uh, um, now a century ago laid claims over the arctic in multiple ways and I'm bringing that up because our next panel will precisely look at intersections of post-colonialism and development. But before we get there, um, let me just say that uh, it, it seems like, you know, if you were to just look at the keywords of what we've discussed in this panel, uh, NATO, Europe, uh, U.S. nationalism, Russia, um, and its, 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 own, its own demons, it almost sounds like uh, the more things change the more they stay the same. Uh, we seem to be having these debates uh, uh, every once in a while. Um, however, I do want to remind our audience that one of the habits of the discipline of international relations is to talk about changes in um, global order. Um, uh, Stanley Hoffman, a professor of international relations from Harvard, in uh, his most famous book, uh, World Disorders, back in the 90s wrote that when you don't know how to call uh, something you call a, a, an era in international history, you call it a post something else. Um, and so we had a post Cold War, then we had a 9-11 era, then we had a, a post 9-11. I don't know what post, what kind of post this is on um, the moment we are currently living, but, but that exactly leads me to the question that I wanted to uh, wrap this panel up with. And this is to all our panelists, and I'll start off with uh, uh, Professor Restad. How would you describe the challenge that uh, what I think are protracted events of uh, a nationalist turn in U.S. foreign policy and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, how would you describe the challenge that they pose to uh, whatever eclectic uh, world order we've had for the past uh, 20 years. And then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump to Yonella and then Chris and then wrap up with Tom. Professor, please. Thank you. Um, well, I think the, the main challenge to the so-called liberal world order is coming internally from the U.S., uh, whereas, as many people have pointed out on the panel, Russia's invasion of Ukraine strengthened uh, this this liberal uh, world order for a while, it can still come undone from the internal challenges in the United States, where there is no longer a consensus, uh, a bipartisan consensus on what the United States represents at home or abroad. And while Biden has been trying to uh, convince the world that America is back, as he's been saying a lot, that isn't all that convincing because with one presidential election, you could have an entirely different approach to U.S. foreign policy alliances, NATO, the EU, as we saw under Trump. And therefore, there's a fundamental instability and unpredictability that characterizes U.S. foreign policy and grand strategy right now. And to me, that is the biggest threat um, to uh, Western alliances. Thank you so much for that. Uh, over to you, Yanala. This is a great question. What we are seeing nowadays, basically, it's a transition to multipolarity. We basically ended the unipolar moment of United States and are, are turning to this multipolarity world where 
there will be many great powers around the world who will compete to uh, promote and create their area of interest and also share their uh, air perspectives. Uh, we also see a change, a move from the um, uh, democratic multilateralism to undemocratic multilateralism because we had the impression that multilateralism uh, it's only based on democracy, but it was based on democracy because the organizations who created it were democratic states. But multilateralism, uh, as constructivism say, it's something that you can make of it and it can be also undemocratic. Probably we'll see the changes and tendencies of undemocratic countries, authoritarian countries, especially China and uh, Russia, to propose various multilateral uh, organizations, either regional or international. Um, and we also see that this is basically the end of the world order based on rules and international norms. So we'll face a world uh, which will uh, be more uncertain, unstable, less cooperative, uh, mostly based on nationalism, as my previous speakers already spoke, less globalization, but also the tendencies of um, um, countries around the world to work together based on their shared values, uh, cooperate when it's uh, for them, um, when it's, it's in their interest to cooperate and also uh, not to do that when they have different values. And also we'll probably see and I'm not sure how this will affect the world because I feel that this is the main challenge of our century. Uh, these tendencies of uh, joining alliances based on ideology. Already President Biden said that our uh, challenge for this century will be the fight of democracies against autocracies. So probably this is also what we'll see in the near future. Thank you so much, Janela. Um, so, Chris, over to you. And in particular, if you could maybe uh, add a note on the role of hybrid threats in the emerging um, international order. Yeah, thank you. And actually, I was hoping to do that anyway with my thoughts. So that's perfect. Um, so I, I would say the the biggest challenge uh, we're facing right now is going to be enduring solidarity or, or rather a lack thereof down the road. Uh, as was correctly pointed out, that the the, uh, the relationship between NATO and the EU is improving. Our leaders have, for many years now, talked about actually doing it, and then you know by the time we actually get around to doing it, it you know start things start happening, meetings, oh we can't line up, whatever it might be, any number of excuses why we can't, but that seems to be going away. Definitely a stronger uh, collaboration there. But even within NATO as well, there's, there's more solidarity amongst the alliance. Um, I would be genuinely surprised if uh, Finland and Sweden aren't members here in the next few years based on polling numbers. Um, but as we start to see, as this war, as we talked about earlier, as this war starts to go on and on and on, it becomes more of a protracted conflict. We're going to start seeing more of those, the fissures start to open up a little bit. Um, it just the common difference differences that 30 or 32 alliance or members are going to have. And this is where Russia and China will try to exacerbate them. So this has been a long standing practice from the Kremlin of understanding what those fissures are and then using information operations, influence operations, various uh, instruments of power across the Dimefield spectrum to kind of open those up um, because they understand that collectively we are the main threat to them. 
individually, they can start to do more about that. And this is probably why before the conflict you saw uh, the engagements with Macron and Schultz as opposed to uh, with the EU or with NATO. And certainly there was an exchanging of letters, but there was no there was no uh, offer to bring Stoltenberg to uh, who's our sec gen for people who aren't familiar uh, to Moscow to be part of the negotiations. So I think that uh, for down the road, we have to make sure that we stay together as best possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And uh, wrapping up with Tom. Just to, to, to sort of paraphrase what you said, maybe everything has changed and at the same time nothing has changed at all. Everything has changed in Europe because this is the end of the post-Cold War security order in Europe, a post-order, possibly transition order, um, because we everything it was based on arms control, uh, indivisibility of security, the idea of a collective security system, uh, the European border regime, the very, very crucial element, crucial cornerstone of European security that you don't change borders by force. Yeah, All this has collapsed. There's nothing left. And there's in that sense no common ground, no common principles for any discussion between Russia and the West. Um, and, and, and Putin has actually himself undermined the credibility and the legitimacy of the security concerns that Russia has expressed so often by creating the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War, um, an atrocious war, creating the biggest security problem there is. Yeah, So there is no legitimacy or no ground for, for talking anymore. At the same time, it may be decisive for the world order in the sense that um, the position of China will be very crucial. And one thing that is worth noticing is that the US has not changed its policy. They still see China as the biggest security threat, the biggest security issue. They have clearly defined, and there is unity on that as well, they have clearly defined the war in Ukraine as a regional war to which we are not part, we are not a party of. So in that sense, we have a situation that that means the US is, is, is pursuing its policy. And I agree with what Professor Restat said, that domestic policies in the, in the US will be very determining, but also China's choice in the sense that uh, China is now keeping low profile, it's not expressively, uh, expressly supporting uh, Russia, but at the same time, it's also not going against Russia. So it has this ambiguous attitude, but this is not a welcome war for China. It's undermining many of its plans, the Belt and Road Initiative, in which Ukraine was very important, for example, um, um, just the fact that it needs stability for its economy to grow further. Yeah, So this is not a very welcome development uh, for China. And I think the choice that China will make eventually, whether they side with Russia or go against Russia, will be uh, very determining. Uh, and I do not dare to speculate or predict what necessarily uh, it will be, but I keep in mind that um, the balance between Russia and China has always been very precarious. We have never had an alliance. We had a partnership of some sort. Uh, there are many issues of competition between the two, so I certainly do not exclude a scenario in which China is no longer willing to uh, to defend Russia or at least to, to let Russia go. So let's see, but if that happens, then we may have a change of world order away from the feared bipolarity that the US administration very much believes in, China and its allies against the, the, the West, uh, and we may go to something that is real multipolarity again rather than bipolarity, and that could be a game changer indeed. Thank you, Tom. I, I would uh, direct the audience to um, some of the academic discussions on counter-hegemonic multipolarity, uh, multipolar regionalism as frameworks to think through uh, maybe uh, the, the current, current moment in uh, uh, world politics. But on that note, I want to thank Professor Hilda Rustad, uh, Dr. Tom Kazir, Yonela Cholan, and Christopher Case for their um, uh, very insightful contributions to our second panel today. Uh, thank you all for attending the panel and please do come back uh, after a coffee break at 2.30 for our third and final panel today 
development and post-colonial times. Please a round of applause for all of our contributors. Thank you.